back on the Canary Road A good luck down in Austin If it was easy, everybody would do it It's all just a part Hey, welcome in. Thanks for telling the friend that you tune in to the other side of Texas. Another week ahead of us, and here we go. Your host here, Jay West, Texas Lease, and glad that you are with us. As we go along, my first thing today is going to be tonight... I voted. Did you? And that's my litmus on whether or not I want to hear about uh, your hot take, your bad take, your good take on whoever the impending, supposedly, probably, next Supreme Court justice is going to be. And uh, that drama going to unfold. They call him a reality president. Well, you've got some prime time entertainment for you tonight first on television and then on social media people are already losing their minds and they don't even know who it's going to be yet holy cow so big big announcement tonight uh whenever i say people are already losing their minds here's chuck schumer senator chuck schumer always moving his hands so weird with his hands always rubbing his hands i don't know if you ever i can't hardly watch the state of the union i have to listen to it because i don't want to see chuck schumer rubbing his hands near impossible to imagine that President Trump would select a nominee who isn't hostile to our health care law and health care for millions and millions and millions of Americans who isn't hostile to a woman's freedom to make her own health care decisions. We can be sure of this because President Trump during the campaign asked Leonard Leo, the founder of the Federalist Society, to assemble a list of possible Supreme Court justices for him to pick from. Okay, so we don't Mr. know what Leo. it's going to be, but we do know what it's going to be. So there you go with Chuck Schumer. I actually don't really... I, I don't like this environment that we're in in which we're deciding what the motivations are and the eternal security one in, or insecurity of others are. Um, but I think you can expect there to be a conservative justice, and I think it's a good thing. And I'm going to get to that towards the end of the program. We're going to get more into the SCOTUS announcement with Scott Braddock, how the next Supreme Court justice could impact the Texas legislature and the lengths to which it's willing to go on issues like abortion, uh, social issues that have been hotly contended. Uh, they, you may see the, the legislature double down on much of that coming up. Uh, we'll also get into... Senate Bill 8 and its ramifications, and but joining us shortly, just waiting for the call-in, it's going to be Brooks Landgraf, state's representative out of the Permian Basin. Lots of boom going down there economically, but bust with its infrastructure. going to hear from Brooks Landgraf. So with all that set up for the program today, I have made up my mind the mailbag I didn't get into last week, but something that I hear more than anything else is we want you to start taking calls. And I was decided against it because I wanted to be in control of the hour. But, you know, we need some order and some chaos around here. And I'm beginning to agree. So next week, tomorrow, may take a couple of calls and see how it goes throughout the rest of the week. If you're on your best manners and we know that the listeners this program extremely sharp we um give you some more time as we go along and uh, we'll lay out some call in other side of texas call in rules 
uh, as we go along. Your thoughts for sure as we roll along on the text line, 806-745-5800. Want to hear from you and what you think we can expect for this evening uh some of you may be having a super bowl-esque party some of you may feel like it's holiday some of you may just uh already be drunk i'm not sure where you are on the spectrum but a great night of american entertainment to be sure we um gonna go out now to our friend brooks landgraf state representative out of odessa he also represents hector Andrews Ward and Winkler Counties. Brooks Landgraf, how are you? Kitty, I'm sorry, the, you, you cut that on me there, that, that last part after Ward County. I, so uh, anything you said there. I, I, said, I said Ward and Winkler. Just Ward and Winkler, good, yeah, good. All, all your places. Yeah, but he is Brooks Landgraf. Glad to have you here on the program, buddy. Jay, I'm, I'm happy to be here with you. Um, so... Let me lay it out. I saw a story this morning, Midland Reporter. What is it? Midland Reporter Times MRT. Why am I forgetting this on this radio program? Yeah, Midland Reporter Telegram. Telegram. Okay. So an Amarillo economist looks at the Midland Odessa Regional Economic Index, wants to call it dramatic, then says stratospheric, and then decides on unparalleled. Quote, this economic rate of growth is unparalleled by any period captured by the index, and that includes up to 2008 from 2010 to 2014. It's unparalleled by anything we've witnessed before. This almost defies description. The Midland Index for April was up some 19% from the previous April. So what I'm hearing here, Brooks Landgraf, the honorary Brooks Landgraf is that I may actually have to pay taxes on my Ector County holdings this year. <laughs> well, it, it uh, all of the projections are, are pointing that way. If, if you do have any uh, holdings in Ector County or anywhere in the Permian Basin, for that matter, uh, no. we, we are looking at, at record-breaking figures. And really, what's what's astonishing about all of this is that the Permian Basin is by far the epicenter for all oil and gas production that's going on in North America right now. I mean, the Permian Basin is not, you know, we're, we're not looking at who we're rivaling as far as other shale plays, you know, in the state of Texas or anywhere in the United States or, or Canada for that matter. You know, we're, we're looking at competing with all of the other, with all of the OPEC countries combined if you take out Saudi Arabia. So we're mm. we're more, you know, online with uh, production that's going on elsewhere in the Middle East than we are you know, any other place else, and uh, and just having that type of hyper concentration in the Permian Basin it is unprecedented. So tell me this, Brooks Langraf. This is, you know, one of my complaints with the cotton guys, and I've certainly done my fair share of speaking out for cotton interests in Texas. But I tell them, you have got to make a concrete argument for people who've never even walked in a cotton field. Why? this commodity is so important how it impacts them in ways they might not have understood so you know there are things that i say like within we're going to get back to the permian basin here in just a second there's plenty of cotton down there too but for up here that's the mega crop it's a mega commodity right and you know the argument is within a 
100 mile radius of Lubbock, there is a four to five billion dollar annual economic impact. So for people that may be listening to this program uh, somewhere down in South Texas or East Texas and haven't even walked through on foot in the Permian Basin, how important is oil to them and that that the economy in the Permian Basin is doing well? Well, it- it, that's a very good question, Jay, and, and the short answer is is that what happens in the Permian Basin has an economic impact in every single corner of the state of Texas, but not only that, it has an impact for public schools in every corner in the state of Texas. It has an impact for every public university in every corner in the state of Texas. Our, our piggy bank, our savings account, the, the rainy day fund, the economic stabilization fund, is funded almost... I mean, 75% of the money that's going into the Rainy Day Fund uh, as recently as 2017 is coming from oil and gas severance tax that is generated here in the Permian Basin. So, you know, what's happening in the Permian uh, has a tremendous positive economic benefit for the rest of the state of Texas. But I guess one thing that we to, to play a support role for the rest of the state, we're all proud to be Texans. And we understand that we have a, a role to play in the dynamic economy that we have here in Texas. Yeah. But if that is going to continue, we also have to make sure that our infrastructure is is being taken care of so that we can continue to produce oil and gas, yeah, which, so, which produces severance tax revenue. So, Brooks, you're entering your, is it your third legislature? This this upcoming, well, I'll, I'll be up for reelection in November, and if I if I win, that'll be my my uh, I'll be entering my third term in the legislature. Okay, so you're going to win in November, and then you'll enter into your third term in the legislature. But I want to ask you: it's befuddling to me, actually. Whenever I drive down into the Permian Basin, you can't. And now they redid 349, and that's been a miracle for people that you know live in Lubbock and have to drive back and forth between Midland, Odessa, and Lubbock, but so far as the rest of the roads and lack of a shoulder and you can see you can visually see that these roads have been worn out and for the life of me i cannot understand now part of it's political in that tom craddock and i speak no ill of him but it just here's one of the most powerful people in texas government tom craddock uh, one of the most accomplished people and then you've got the likes you've got a great uh a great group of lawmakers that represent that region and i'm trying to get my mind around is it an inequitable distribution within the region brooks or is it just excuse me representative landgraf or is it (laughs) is it more a statewide issue of you know we don't fund projects to this part well it's really a the, the problem is not so much a political one as much as it is a mathematical problem. Of course, you know, I, I suppose you can't really deny that those two things are, are intertwined at some level. But, Jay, as you know, if you take out El Paso County, out of 150 members of the Texas House of Representatives, there are only 16 of us who represent the area that's west of I-35. And I know mm-hmm. you know that as well as anybody. Harris County, by contrast, where Houston is, has 26 members in the House from that one county alone. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a numbers game that when you're dividing up state highway funds, it's and it's roughly based on on population. Then areas that aren't you know, that don't have uh, you know major freeway projects are, are going to get left out the way that the formula works right now. For example, 
a lot of the oil field traffic, a lot of the cotton traffic that, that you see uh, up there on the on the Yano Estacado down here in the Permian Basin is not taking into consideration, uh, or, or, excuse me, that formula doesn't take into consideration some of the, our local truck traffic because it's not considered to be freight traffic, which is generally considered to be, you know, 18-wheelers rolling up and down I-27 or I-20, and, uh, and it's typically interstate traffic. But as we all know, uh, you know, a, a, a heavy frac sand mine truck, uh, which which will have easily 80,000 pounds, you know, per load, is going to have just as much, or is going to produce just as much wear and tear on the high. You still there? In this formula. So I think we, we have to fix that, but we also have to make sure that we're taking into consideration all from, you know, Katy, west of Houston, to, to downtown Houston for their commute every day. Now, that's important. Uh, you know, the areas that are producing so much wealth for the state of Texas, and if we're not doing that, then we are, in effect, killing the goose that laid the golden egg, and, and, and that's not only bad for the Permian Basin, but that's bad for the entire state of Texas. Okay. Well, there's the case then. So what now, though, Representative? I mean, what? surely the delegation down there has an idea of what we can do to get our cut of the pie here, especially since we're producing all the components for the pie. Well, I, I think that's a that's a good argument to make, but uh, for the for for the reasons that you've stated, you know, if we want to keep producing uh, these benefits for the rest of the state, if you don't provide ingress and egress to energy producing areas, if you don't have adequate uh, law enforcement, if you don't have uh, an adequate or or a, an educated workforce, then that's going to get cut off. I mean, this mm-hmm. stuff doesn't happen by accident. No. We have to be very deliberate about making sure that we continue to put ourselves uh, in in a position to be successful for the for these opportunities that we have with our no. natural resources. Well, Representative, but, go ahead. Sorry, I don't want to cut you off. No, no, please, please. No, make your point, and uh, we got plenty of time here. Sure. Well, and I think that the easiest way to do this, or, or at least the most logical way to do it is, uh, you know, I, I mentioned a little bit earlier about how much uh, oil and gas severance tax is, is being produced from this energy production. And that severance tax is, is more or less in line with uh, the activity that's going on in the, in the oil field, certainly more so than any other, uh, more than any other source of, of tax revenue. But if we could keep just a small portion of that oil and gas severance tax, which is generated directly from uh, the production of oil and natural gas in Texas, mm-hmm. and keep that in the areas where it's produced uh, to make sure that the infrastructure needs are, are being taken care of, to make sure that the uh, uh, skilled workforce needs are being taken care of, uh, You know, then that will put us in a position where we will be able to continue to produce and continue to generate uh, a tremendous economic benefit for the rest of, uh, of the state of Texas. And that's a way that you can do that without creating any new taxes, without increasing taxes. It, it keeps, a, a, again, a small portion of the money where it's generated so that we can continue to generate uh, economic benefit for the rest of the state. And, and so yeah. that's, to me, the, the most logical uh, answer to, to making sure that these needs are addressed. Yeah, okay. Well, so Representative Brooks Landgraf out of Odessa here with us. And I, look, my wife can say... I'm, we're going to drive to Dallas this weekend. Okay. Well, I know that they're going to take state highway, not not an interstate. They're going to take highway. All right. Or we're going to drive to Santa Fe, or we're going to drive to uh, Austin. Okay. Um, but whenever I hear Midland, I get really nervous. Midland, Odessa, 
Because what people don't understand, Representative, is that it's not just condition of the roads, which I've said, large majority over the last couple of years, TxDOT's done a really great job with. But by and large, you see, you know, sand or, or crops growing up past the shoulder. And then on top of it, you've got all this Texas miracle traffic going, right? Like the oil right. trucks and different. It makes you really nervous as a husband, maybe even as a right. wife to have... So you want safe and secure roads out there, and I think you're right to fight and by whatever formula you can get it to get it done. Well, no, I, I think you're absolutely right about that, and, and that's really what the other heart of the problem is. I mean, you know, you can put aside formulas and all of that, and we can get into some, you know, policy wonk uh, talk about it, but really the fact of the matter is is that uh, regardless of what policy uh, is coming out of Austin, as the uh, the Amarillo economist who, who's been talking about uh, you know this particular boom and the nature of it. I mean the the traffic has just grown so fast that construction cannot keep up with, and, and that's just the nature of of the region right now. Mm-hmm. But but you're absolutely right. It does create no. uh, hazardous conditions. Let me let me. Uh, I, I was talking with some TxDOT officials recently. The Permian Basin is home to about two and a half percent of the population of the state of Texas, but in also in the Permian Basin, although we have that small percentage of the population, we also are home to 10% of the fatal car accidents in the state of Texas. So if you look at that, I mean, we're talking about a very, very disproportionately high uh, amount of fatal uh, automobile accidents that are happening in a very, a relatively small area of the state, precisely because there's more traffic than roads can accommodate, and, and that's, that's yeah. just the, the simple fact of, of life here in the Permian Basin right now. And if that continues over time, then that's going to have a detrimental impact on our ability to produce uh, oil and gas, but also our ability to create a safe working environment for uh, for people who are creating this Texas miracle. Yeah, and, and look, it's all my intrigue with all of this is that I think every most every county, especially to get out of the Oak Line in west of I thirty five, has a gripe with their roads because rural roads are and this is quantifiably true more deadly than any other kind of road but it's i think it is it's magnified there in the permian basin and that's my intrigue with having you on is this it's a seemingly disparate seeming disparity that here you're getting all of the revenues out of this region but it's coming at a cost of this region so if we're going to continue this relationship between the region and the state at large there has to be some funding for it so this is what i want to set up for you and not to put you on the hot spot but there are people who it's so funny where you get west of I-35 and you get into politics, lots of times you see, and I think to the region's detriment, Amarillo versus Lubbock, uh, Lubbock versus Midland, and Midland versus Amarillo. This big, uh, you know, it, it's a race to see who can get what access because there's so few dollars that come out this way comparative to other regions of the state. And, you know, Kel Seliger has as senator state senator kel selger down your way and up into amarillo has come on this program and said that he opposes uh loop 88 which is going to go out south of lubbock this big project that won't even i'll be dead by the time it's done and then uh i-27 extension that he's he's pushed the brakes on that because amarillo since the 60s has asked for a loop 
around the city that's never come and by and large the same thing's true in midland he thought it was best for his constituents do you think that it's more a matter of an unequal share in lubbock or do you think it's just an inequitable share altogether coming west of i-35 yeah I, I think we have to you know and i've like i'm a i'm a lifelong west texan my family's been ranching out in, in this part of the state for five generations uh you know I, i've seen the trials and tribulations that, that we have to face but in the three and a half years that i've been serving in the texas house of representatives it's come into much sharper focus for me that uh you know we, we really do have to look at ourselves as as a region and and in the case of what we're talking about and what's going on here in the Permian Basin, you know, what's good for the Permian Basin is also good for the for the rest of the state of Texas. But I, I think we do have to band together our, the resources that we do have, and I think we do have a very strong delegation. You know, both both members from uh, you know from Lubbock, Dustin Burroughs, and John Frulo are, are very much on board with us working together as a as a West Texas delegation. Tom Crack and I down here in the in the Permian Basin, uh, and I. I guess I better start, stop naming names there, or else I'm going to lose, uh, leave a few out. But uh, but no, we do have to think regionally, and and I think for the most part we we will do that. Now, of course, there are always going to be some conflicts when it comes into you know which particular community is going to you know get this route or or, or that. But for the most part, I think we have to be working to make sure that our our geographic half of the state here is getting uh, the resources. You know, not that we deserve to have necessarily, but that we that we need to have, and that we're and that we're certainly paying more than our fair share um, in, into the state's coffers to have. Yeah. Well, I know that the former transportation chair Joe Pickett out of El Paso, Democrat, but out of El Paso, this has been a conundrum for a long time, and I'm I'm eager to see how you guys approach it. A uh, couple of questions for you: uh, More roads mean more allsops in the Permian Basin. <laughs> well, you know, you can't have uh, you can't have all subs without having uh, without having roads or highways. So I think uh, yes, one necessarily uh, requires the so other. So that's your chief motivator, really. At the end of the day, this isn't <laughs> about true. this isn't that's, about public safety. Right. <laughs> it's about you having access to chimichangas <laughs> and world famous burritos. Yeah, and the, and the hatch uh, the hatch Soriano burrito. I mean, yeah, that's that's. I, I mean, you've un, you've uncovered my motive. That's right. really what what I'm. I'm uh, speaking of motives, uh, you've been pretty quiet on this speaker race. Um, you going to come out in this, or are you going to uh, get involved in any way? Well, I, I, I'm just well, all of the rest of my colleagues across the state just having different conversations with uh, with colleagues who are are interested in, yeah. in doing it. Wasn't Joe Strauss in his third term? Or I'm sorry. Maybe Joe Strauss was in his second term. Brooks Landgraf. Did I in, lose? In his second term. Was he in his no, second I'm, I'm or third here. term? I can't recall. If I, I think. Well, I'm sorry. I guess. I, I guess I didn't hear the first part of the question. Rep, then Representative Joe Strauss, I believe, was in his third term. Oh. I'm just trying to draw some correlations here, Brooks Landgraf. <laughs> well, uh, Mrs. Landgraf would probably put the kibosh on that before it ever uh, got too uh, before the conversation ever got too far down the road. So I don't think okay. anybody uh, has to worry about that, and, and I don't think anybody else would be particularly uh, interested in that uh, in that discussion. So for lay people, and I'll let you go. Isn't it great whenever I get a hold of you, come on the show, and then I drag you into a speaker's argument? But for lay people, <laughs> when when will this really pick up? When will the chatter begin to pick up? You think is it after the elections or before? I, I think it'll really uh, begin to crescendo after after the election, just because you'll have uh, you'll have the electorate for the, for the speaker's race uh, set at that point, 
and uh, and I think that you know depending on how the elections go, I mean that could go a, a long way into determining the uh, you know the complexion of, of of the race. And so I think uh, yeah, I think we're going to know a lot more after after that first weekend. Over. All right. Well, Brooks, this and other things as you begin to put together legislation to get the uh, severance or wherever you want to call it to get your fair share out of all this transportation infrastructure funding. Why don't you come back on the show? Well, I'll be happy to do that, Jay, and I appreciate you having me on today. Brooks Landgraf, ladies and gentlemen. You can follow him on Twitter by that very name. Uh, We'll get back in. Thank you, Representative. Well, it's Monday, and that means that it's time for some Braddock on Texas with Quorum Report editor Scott Braddock. Calling in from Austin. How are you, Scott Braddock? I'm great, Jay Leeson. How are you? I, we are in the middle of it all. You know, it's like mm-hmm. how many vacations are we going to take this summer? Real first world problems at the Leeson Ponderosa. Yes, uh, y'all were out in uh, where? Utah? Uh, Is that right? Up in Colorado. 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 And mm-hmm. uh, then we did, we're going to do some time down at uh, the Alamo nice. City. Alamo City, I should say. We'll probably mm-hmm. go to Alamo, San Antonio. Gotcha. Um, and then a little road trip out to Wisconsin. So awesome. We're doing it's all that. over the place. Mm-hmm. That's all over the place. I mainly I've pre- been preoccupied with the beach. I was in Galveston and Bolivar and then South Padre last week. But I did make it to the mountains, uh, as you know, uh, to Aspen for a couple of days. And that's the thing to do. Go to Colorado. <laughs> but, you know, when it's 110 here, go to where it's 68 degrees. Yeah. You can't argue. I don't know. I, I'm curious to know what kind of Texas money makes up the Colorado GDP. But, Quite uh, a bit. Yeah. yeah sure. So tonight is the night. It's almost like a main event now. Uh, reality oh, yeah. television, for better or for worse, uh, President Trump expected to appoint a, quote, exceptional person to the Supreme Court. <laughs> the Bre- best person. Bredick, the... Lots of scuttlebutt about abortion over sure. these recent years in the Texas legislature. Arguably the most conservative state in the union whenever it comes to the abortion issue. Some yes, of these sir. things have not moved in the legislature. Some of these bills that would essentially outlaw abortion. Because why? Abortion is absolutely the best fundraising tool for both folks on the left and on the right. And I'm starting with that because you may remember in the last legislative session there was a bill pushed by a Freedom Caucus member, a gentleman named Tony uh, Tony Tenderholt from Arlington, Texas, mm-hmm. and his bill basically would have banned all abortion. Uh, and this bill, and by the way, there was no similar bill in the Texas Senate that I know about. Uh, there was Senate Bill 8 um, that was uh, you know uh, pushed uh, through uh, dealing with uh, a myriad of abortion issues, and in fact, was probably more of a sweeping anti-abortion bill than the one that Wendy Davis filibustered back in 2013, so famously or infamously, depending on your point of view. Um, and but Senate this bill eight for listeners, uh, <laughs> authored by State Senator out of Lubbock, Charles Perry. Yes, it could be Perry's bill, right? So, um, bill, yeah. yes, the big, big um, piece of legislation. Um, and I have to tell you that this bill that was filed to just ban all abortion uh, didn't move uh, in the Texas House, and again, it was not even filed in the Texas Senate, which is always claiming to be more conservative. Uh, but this bill was filed. It was referred to the State Affairs Committee in the House. 
which is chaired by uh, Byron Cook, who's retiring, uh, just like uh, Speaker Joe Strauss is retiring. And I saw a lot of criticism online uh, from various folks who were saying that the reason that that bill didn't get a vote was because it was, you know, too conservative. Uh, the, the, uh, the bill went too far and that the House leadership is a bunch of liberals, but you know who would be saying that sort of stuff. I don't even need to mention them, I don't think. Uh, but that's just not the case. It's, it's not the case that the House leadership uh, was adamantly opposed to doing pro-life things. The bill that we just mentioned, Senate Bill 8, also passed the Texas House uh, and has, of course, now been bogged down in the courts, and we'll figure out exactly what happens with it. Um, but the bill to ban all abortion, as the courts are currently constituted, uh, would not have held up, right? I mean, it, there was no discussion in the last year, in 2017, about whether or not Roe versus Wade would be overturned, which if that bill to ban all abortion had been upheld by the courts, then Roe v. Wade would be overturned. Uh, but now there is some uh, probably uh, reasonable speculation about that, because one thing that President Trump has absolutely done, you know, for all of the talk about whether or not he's conservative in a traditional sense, he certainly isn't in a traditional sense, but whether he's redefining what it means to be conservative on a whole host of issues, whether it's free trade or dealing with our uh, allies and enemies around the world, all that sort of stuff. The one thing he's absolutely done that is conservative is putting conservative uh, judges and justices on the courts, right? I mean, he put uh, Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. He's put a lot of uh, Federalist Society types on lower courts uh, and really packing the bench with uh, you know, very conservative uh, folks. And basically, I think he's just going through the Federalist Society uh, membership uh, book and picking people out of there is what it looks like. Uh, but no matter who he picks, and by the way, um, you know, there are some names floating about and, uh, you know, maybe some leaked uh, information uh, before the actual announcement. We'll all have to see. Uh, but the, the speculation, of course, is that uh, the court will be moving to the right uh, now, on, especially on issues like abortion. Um, and if there is a differently constituted Supreme Court, which might uphold an outright ban on abortion, then I can imagine that whoever the next leadership team is in the Texas House might move a bill about that because it, it's been a long-standing practice of people who are in the pro-life movement uh, to pass bills that test what the courts will tolerate, right? Um, that was the case in 2013 uh, with uh, HB2 and then Senate Bill 5. Of course, it became uh, SB5 uh, later uh, and House Bill 2, uh, you know, being uh, the, the bill that was uh, uh, filibustered uh, and all that. Uh, and then, of course, that's the case again in 2017 where you have Senate Bill 8, Yeah, Scott Braddock here with us, tearing on on a Monday. I, I wanted... I'll tell you what else. If, can we add one other thing about that? Mm -hmm. Interesting, um, and it may lead into the next discussion here. Um, one other thing is that if the legislature is allowed, uh, because the courts uh, are going to be differently constituted, if, the, if lawmakers are sort of politically allowed to go on and uh, discuss things uh, like abortion and get back to what I would call 
you know, real social issues like abortion. I mean, no matter what you think about it, it's really one of those social issues that sort of, um, you know, is is part of our national fabric, right? I mean, people really want to know uh, where our policymakers come down on something like that. If they're talking about something that's a real social issue like that, well, then maybe they won't be talking about made-up things like bathroom bills. Okay. Well, I do want to get back to what kind of leeway they're going to have. Mm-hmm. I, I, so it does change the complexion on what we're arguing on the social end, for sure, in the next legislature coming up in January. But I want to get back to Charles Perry's Senate Bill 8. It has been held up in courts. It, uh, a temporary restraining order in August 2017 blocking the provision on banning dilation and evacuation abortions. 2000, November 2017 an injunction blocking the state from enforcing a dilation and evacuation ban and then in 2018 temporarily blocked the fetal burial provision that speaks to the omnibus but it also speaks to the likelihood and i'm not willing to wager quite yet but with the sort of interaction it's already had and tension it's had with the courts it seems that one of texas's first laws unless the next legislature passes something even more dynamic uh, could be Senate Bill 8 out of Texas going to the Supreme Court. Right. This uh, this is the deal with uh, big pieces of legislation like this. Uh, they, they, it's, it's a full employment act for attorneys who deal with the issue. Uh, you know, it goes through um, federal courts in, you know, in the state, and then it goes to the appellate courts, and eventually makes its way all of it. It usually makes its way up to uh, the Supreme Court for uh, some final uh, decision, um, and and so when we say omnibus, I mean the shorthand version of that. You know what that really means is it's just a lot of stuff packed in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that people should remember about these uh, pieces of legislation is they also um, generally and almost always will uh, include uh, what they call a severability clause, which means that each of the big sort of uh, items that is in that bill. Each of them stand or fall on their own. As the you know, if the courts strike down one part of it, well, then the rest of it stands. Um, you know, and vice versa. Yeah, pretty, pretty well put together piece of legislation yes, there. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever one may make, it has to respect the huge bill. Frame. Yeah, mm-hmm. but huge speaking bill. of the Supreme Court, a big Supreme yeah. Court ruling on sales taxes could be a windfall. Uh, yeah. What do you think? Well, so the uh, court's, uh, you know, kind of center stage in our uh, show today. Uh, The Supreme Court, once again, um, did uh, decide that the uh, states are free to go ahead and collect online sales taxes from some of these companies that are selling things to us directly. I don't know about your house, Jay, but I have a, I, I might as well just have a room in my house that's Amazon boxes, uh, because that's the way I prefer to shop. Uh, there was already a settlement in uh, the case of Texas and Amazon, where Amazon was already remitting some sales taxes to Texas. Um, this uh, decision, uh, the company Wayfair, which sells um, uh, furniture, uh, they had gone up against the state, uh, what was it, North Dakota, uh, which was trying to get them to also uh, collect sales taxes and remit those to the state. Uh, and the Supreme Court said that the state was free to go on and do that. Um, well, there are some ways in which the state of Texas might go after some of these online retailers. Uh, of course, Amazon, again, being the biggest one, but they're already doing, uh, you know, doing that, collecting the taxes and sending them to Texas uh, for those people who are in Texas and are buying things on Amazon. Uh, but, uh, you know, there are other smaller uh, retailers that uh, might be 
um, you know, worth looking at. Uh, the uh, comptroller, Glenn Hager, put out a memo that said he would be looking at uh, putting some rules together for exactly how this ought to be done. Uh, the top budget writer in the state uh, right now in the House anyway, uh, John Zerwas, who is the head of the uh, House Appropriations Committee. It, you know, only when talking about the Texas budget, Joe Leeson, could you say, well, it might be $100 million, so maybe it's worth looking at. Mm. You know, <laughs> um, but that is potentially, at least according to him, how much money ought to be, you know, could be uh, collected additionally for the state. Um, and I think we still don't quite have, and, you know, getting rough outlines now, we still don't quite have the exact budget picture that we'll be looking at when the lawmakers come back to uh, work in Austin in 2019, but certainly uh, we know that there's going to be more costs associated with Hurricane Harvey. We know that uh, another hurricane season is now just underway, uh, and, uh, you know, of course, uh, nobody wants to see another big storm, but, it, you know, who knew that uh, Harvey would be the disaster that it was, uh, so we have to get through another hurricane season. And then, of course, other uh, needs that uh, the state has. And so looking at uh, ways to bring in more revenue always uh, going to be something that's a little tricky uh, because, look, this is a Republican state, and you have Republican leadership that doesn't want to be seen as eager to tax businesses. And, uh, again, it might be a little easier for uh, lawmakers and uh, the governor and the lieutenant governor uh, and whoever the next speaker is going to be. It might be a little easier for them politically to go after uh, some additional revenue from some of these companies if we hadn't just spent a whole year arguing about a bathroom bill, which already had some of these tech companies and other companies angry with us for even talking about. And then you also get into the broader discussion of tax policy, um, you know, including the fact uh, that over the last decade, you and I could not come up with one big business that has started in Texas, and that's because about a decade ago we uh, implemented uh, the franchise tax, which of course uh, is a unique tax. I don't know that there's any um, other state in the nation, Jay, and I'd have to do some more research on this, but I don't know that there's any other place where uh, businesses are taxed on their gross receipts. In other words, they're taxed even if they're losing money. And as you know, as a businessman, when you're starting a new business, um, the, you know, the one, the, the, you know, the proposition is you're going to probably lose money at first before you build some um, some value in that and start making money with it. And what businessman or what investor would want to be taxed even if they're losing money when they're trying to start a business? So, well, the you know, the state has been over the last decade. This is true with Perry. It's true with Abbott uh, as governors. Uh, they've been reduced to trying to lure businesses from other places uh, rather than see large companies start here, which is something that used to happen. Mm. It just brings to mind, you know, the controller of the state of Texas oversees the budget and puts all the numbers together, for those who are not familiar. And his name's Glenn Hager. Now, Hager, just to go off on a little sideway jaunt here, yeah. seems to be in a fairly as important a position as I can remember a controller being in in some time. And he's got to find some way to address the franchise it's always you know you can't do lead loss constantly in texas you know he's going to have to do uh, franchise tax is always a big polarizing issue but also we've talked before about going after after the pharmaceutical companies and to the extent that he has a role in that in estimating what could be had whenever the texas attorney general goes after the pharmaceuticals as he says he has and then this hundred million dollars in sales tax. Has Hager spoken directly to going after this? Well, 
his office did put out a memo uh, last week saying that he would take uh, a look at uh, implementing some rules. Basically, he's saying to the legislature, he's signaling to them that they need to do something about this because they do need more revenue coming in. Um, but you know, Who's to your point, on that sword, though. Well, I'm not sure, but to your point about the uh, you know being a, a lead loss situation with the franchise tax. Remember what the franchise tax was originally put in place to do. You remember, right? The whole idea was they would put a tax on business so that property taxes could be, uh, as they put it, bought down, mm-hmm. and people would not be paying so much in property taxes. That was about a decade ago, and of course, as everybody knows, nobody's property taxes went down. They continued to go up, and it has gone up even more and even more and even more and has reached crisis levels for a lot of people where a lot of people across the state would tell you that you can never own real property in Texas because you're always going to be... Uh, tax so high on it, uh, and you know it started out as a problem uh, that uh, was identified by Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who was just a lowly radio talk show host like yourself and myself back in the day. Uh, but it has been the issue that he ha- that he rode all the way to the Lieutenant Governor's office by whipping up people's anger about it. Uh, but he has to this date not come up with any proposal to actually make those taxes go down. Remember, his uh, proposal is to simply cap the amount by which your property taxes can go up, uh, and this is uh, a fundamental tension in the state, but all of these different um, tax issues come from the, you know, come from sort of the root of the same tree, which is no one, at least in my lifetime or yours, has come up with any serious proposal to get people's property taxes in the state to go yeah. down, and it was only last year that the now retiring Speaker Joe Strauss, only in the middle of the last summer, that he really started to talk about the idea that if you want property taxes to go down, and what you have to do is tackle the school finance system and do a complete rebuild of that and not just build another model, you know, not not another F-150, not another truck that looks like the last model of F-150, but come up with a complete rebuild from the bottom to the top. Hmm. And until they get serious about that, none of that's going to change. Yeah, it just kind of reminds me of the 2014 cotton program that we put into place and completely did nothing. And I wonder if <laughs> yeah, yeah. people feel the same about the franchise tax. It, here it was supposed to fix things, but the problem's only <laughs> worsening, and we're wondering why we're coming down on small businesses the way that we are. Uh, speaking well, of, you mentioned... Yeah, well, I can tell you that business owners, business owners are certainly worried about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I imagine they are. <laughs> they have to be. But, well, yeah, they, they are, but and but the problem is that there, there aren't enough people like yourself. Like, this is why this is such a great show, if I can give you this credit. We have the time to connect all these dots for people. Yep. People who are homeowners out there who may not be business owners maybe haven't connected this before, yep. but they need to because the, the business guy up the street is suffering, but your taxes haven't. He was supposed to suffer a little bit so that your taxes would go down, but that did not happen. Yep. So, you know, I mean, uh, the lieutenant governor, and I've heard some chatter about this in Austin recently, um, the lieutenant governor, um, if he was to get his way and they were to put property tax caps in place, maybe that would be the best thing. Maybe if in 2019 they went on and did that, um, then people who are homeowners would realize that it is a scam, that if, you, that if you put property tax caps in place, your taxes still will not go down. Maybe the legislature ought to just pass that. built into the budget. Oh, well, well, that's right. That's right. It's built into the budget. It's built into the budget. Uh, the state counts on the idea that the valuations will go up, and so your tax bill will go up at the local level so that, they, so that the state can pull back its amount that it's putting into school mm-hmm. property taxes. Remember, this is in Senate Bill 1, the state budget of the state of Texas. Uh, it says that property values will go up 
what, about 7% each year over the biennium, so for four, about 14% over two years, which means they're building into the state budget the possibility of your property tax bill going up by that same amount. Um, and so if they went ahead and passed what Dan Patrick said that he wants, guess what? Your bill would still go up. No. If, they, if they put a property tax cap in place at 6%, or 5% or 4% or whatever, you would have cities and counties or whatever uh, taxing entities around the state that are capped, they would be given the green light to just increase your uh, taxes by 4.99% or 3.99% or whatever. I appreciate your compliments on the program and, you know, what we try to do, I think that there's such a hunger for people to understand what's, what's going on and not to have it packed in between a bunch of hot clickbait and hot talk but you know we try to be entertaining at the same time we want a long form almost podcast style to get informed people like you on the program and then we can begin to engage these issues here I'm not sure how we got here, but I appreciate that we're here because it brings up well, I'm not, another I'm not issue. sure I meant to go off on that tangent, but no, there well, you go. Look, it, but whenever you talk about the, the caps are not going to fix anything, well, my concern is that we've got a lot of overlay with urbans. Whenever I say we, I mean rural regions have a lot of overlay with urbans, much more than people understand. And... If we go in and we decide, lawmakers from this part of the world decide to cut a deal with a governor, a lieutenant governor, whoever, and say, okay, we're going to be exempted from that, my concern is blowback in other proposals that would benefit rural, and because we, quote-unquote, sold them down the river to the scam... There might be some retribution for that. Maybe I'm reading in too much, and I know it's a very difficult 140-day process, but I am concerned that the urbans will be fired up enough about this that there could be some retribution because there are quite a few more lawmakers from urban centers than there are out on the other side of Texas. Well, when you have uh, rural lawmakers who are willing to say, you know, I'll vote for this, um, as long as you carve me out, yeah, there, there's going to be some blowback for that. Yeah. Well, no speak- question. And it was the same for uh, the school voucher program, by the way. Remember um, when the uh, school voucher program uh, that uh, the lieutenant governor wanted passed uh, was on the, when it was uh, being debated on the floor of the Senate, uh, you had Kel Seliger from Amarillo who got up and made a lot of arguments against it, of course, based primarily on the fact that it would do nothing to help people in rural school districts and instead would take money away from those uh, from those institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the person who was really caught in the middle was Senator Lois Colquhorst, who's, um, and you got to love this, Jay, you can't make this stuff up, Colquhorst was arguing that Fort Bend County, with its 700,000 or so people, uh, should be exempt because it's a little too small for a program like this. The reason she was trying to do that is because her district, uh, which stretches from Brenham down to Victoria, down to the coast, and then over to uh, the Sugar Land and Katy area, um, her district is two-thirds rural, one-third suburban. Uh, And so she was really caught in the middle and having to twist herself into a pretzel about that whole thing. Yeah. And there you'd have to introduce Charles Perry into the fray as well, I would argue. But let's move... He walks walks in a world that's not like any other senator has to deal with. I think you're you're quoting him there. Well, it was something like that. Yeah. I think you extensively quoted him, which is uh, helpful. (laughs) 
Scott Braddock, Corn Report. Let's go to this last topic. Speaking of caps in place and local control being the fight of the day and what that even means anymore, it certainly doesn't mean what it meant 25 years ago. It looks like the next big fight could be whether cities can require employers to offer paid sick leave for workers. Um, what kind of alliances are forming there, and, and what's that packed with? Interesting that the Texas Association of Business, which has not always been on the same page with the Texas Public Policy Foundation, where Chairman Tim Dunn uh, of Empower Texans fame is uh, vice president uh, of the board, vice chair of the board over at uh, the TPPF, um, the two of those groups are teamed up on this one because it does seem that cities may have gone a little bit too far here. Um, you know, I've heard some folks who would even describe themselves as Democrats and liberals who think that the uh, city of Austin, for example, uh, went too far uh, in passing an ordinance that says that private employers have to offer paid sick leave time to people uh, who are their employees. And um, it, it comes down to a question of who has that control. Now, you know, there, there, there have been a lot of these local control debates, right? Uh, as you alluded to, there was the debate over uh, a fracking ban in Denton County, uh, up in Denton, uh, up in North Texas, and there was, uh, you know, the debate over the plastic bag bans, which, of course, were put in uh, place by, I think, nine cities across the state, including Austin and South Padre Island, where mm -hmm. I just was last week. Um, and, you know, some of those things seem to be more um, calling balls and strikes, uh, you know, about various issues. But I think that the cities may have, and by the way, I'm somebody who may be a little more sympathetic to the idea that uh, certain companies, at least of certain size, might need to be required to do this. However, I'm not sure it's the municipal government's call, um, it, it, because there are so many questions about it. It, it was sort of similar to um, whether or not the uh, cities ought to be able to regulate uh, ride-sharing, for example, um, where you have a lot of questions about whether or not um, you're creating a patchwork of regulations that's just impossible for uh, a business to be able to operate in. So if you've got an Uber car that's driving uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, for example, and every five minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, they're entering a different municipality, do they have to worry about whether they're operating under different rules in each one of those cities? Um, well, with this, if you're going to say to private employers, you have to uh, provide paid sick leave, um, what was that? And by the way, they didn't really answer this in the ordinance that they passed in Austin, uh, for, as the prime example. Um, does that mean that it, it, it has to be a business that's headquartered in Austin? Is it any business that does any business in Austin? Is it a business that's in technically in Travis County, but their employees travel into Austin uh, to do certain work? Uh, does that apply to your subcontractors, independent subs, etc.? cetera? Uh, and so if you're going to have some rule that says that uh, employers, uh, for example, in the entire state have to offer this, that would be a very different debate because then you could offer uh, a more predictable, what I would call a predictable regulatory environment uh, for these uh, businesses to operate. And now I can't imagine the Texas legislature would force businesses to do that. Uh, not a very, not a good chance at all of that happening. Um, but if there's going to be a debate about this, it should probably happen at the state capitol and not in city halls around uh, the state and the country. Scott Brack, as we close off with you, let me just... In Speaking of long form, in just a minute or two left here, but why, like I look at, 
I, I can't stand outliers in politics, like the fringe people, and they take up these these outlier instances and make them, yeah. and then it's like big government coming down on everybody, uh, mm-hmm. mid-sized cities and otherwise, but just riddle me this, how how is Austin so liberal? Like, what... What is? I know that this is quite a quite a question at the end, but I mean it's yeah. it's like a bastion of craziness, and everybody else winds up paying the price for it. Well, in some in some cases, you're exactly right. Um, Austin uh, has a reputation of being extremely liberal. I can tell you that it's real, and it has been for a long time. Of course, uh, Rick Perry uh, described. Uh, Travis County as the blueberry in the tomato soup mm-hmm. um, years ago. Uh, that's going back to like 2006, I think, or, or maybe a little, around that time. Anyway, uh, there are other cities that are trending, uh, you know, more democratic, of course, but um, it has always been uh, the, the big liberal enclave in Texas. Why that is exactly, um, I'm not exactly sure, but, uh, you know, over the decades it's certainly uh, gotten more liberal, and I can tell you that um, it's interesting that Austin, uh, let me let me put it to you this way, Austin uh, for years, uh, while some other cities uh, like Houston and Dallas uh, were adopting single-member districts for their city councils uh, and, you know, working toward creating better representation for minority communities on their city councils. Um, you know, while Big D and Houston were doing that, Austin sta- you know, pretty much uh, stood firm with uh, at-large uh, mm-hmm. uh, elections for the city council, which actually uh, made it a little more conservative than this, but made the, made the city operate in a more conservative way mm-hmm. than is actually reflected by the community. Uh, and then after that changed a few years ago and they started electing uh, city council members uh, according to their uh, neighborhoods, uh, the city hall has taken an even more uh, of a turn to the left, yeah. and so you see a lot of these, uh, a lot, a lot of these things. And th- you know, that's when we started to see the fight over Uber. Mm-hmm. Now we're seeing this fight over, um, you know, the next iteration of this is the is the paid sick leave deal. Uh, but it is a tried and true uh, tactic at the Texas Capitol, you know, to point out whatever uh, Austin just did and say it's the most liberal thing ever. And so no cities should be allowed to do almost anything. If if they could take these things issue by issue, that would be one thing. You know, you and I here are talking about the paid sick leave deal, um, but Governor Abbott takes it way too far uh, and says that uh, basically, and this was, I'm paraphrasing, but his his quote uh, at the Texas Public Policy Foundation was essentially that cities maybe should not even have the ability to write any ordinances. And I don't think, um, you know, right-thinking folks agree with that. I mean, the the governments that are closest to people probably uh, make the better decisions. Yeah, it's, well, the blueberry's out of control, so let's extrapolate and make the whole tomato bowl of tomato soup pay for it. It just drives me (laughs) crazy. Yeah, that's what always goes on. But uh, the folks at Austin City Hall don't seem self-aware enough to realize. Yeah, I'm going to start checking my blood pressure whenever you call, Braddock, because there's some point where I really get frustrated. Not at you, just at the state of things. Well, it's our our subject matter. I understand. He is Scott Braddock. Go check him out on Twitter at scottbraddockandcoremreport.com. Thank you, Braddock. Thank you, Lisa. Talk to you. A shoe shine man, make you shine where you stand. Leave me a tip if you can, I'm a shoe shine man. But I can sing, I can dance, I can play the harmonica too. 
do think that the Supreme Court is better served to have a majority of conservatives versus liberals, and I'm going to tease that for tomorrow. Why will be in good, and that assumes that that Trump is not going, to, the president is not going to take some wild card tonight by uh, all accounts currently on. Uh, social media by news reporting I think that you can expect Brett Kavanaugh who's out of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia to be the pick Brett Kavanaugh and you know how I get those picks not based upon pundits but a based on based upon Vegas and what Vegas has to say uh, this segment brought to you by Title One, Lubbock's digital real estate and title escrow company. Title One is committed to providing you with the highest level of communication and service from the time the contract opens until it closes. See how Title One can serve your realty, consumer, and lending needs at TitleOne.com. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we are going to have us, um, well, we're going to have some time with Drew Landry reached out to us wanted to be on the program and i'm going to give him that time for sure he he's the uh democrat running for house district 83 a democrat like yeah i don't know that you've seen a democrat run like this in some time in west texas uh looking forward to having drew landry and stick right with us got to get another quick break in before we close out with you and break down the rest of the week right here on the other side of Texas. One thing I wanted to get was Tracy. I appreciate you listening to the show and for your email to Jay at Other Side of Texas. Uh, appreciates the coverage that I gave to the vet school says that she learned a few things in my piece in the Dallas Morning News and then she posts um, the follow-up that came from it and I look so we wrote about that I wrote about it in the Dallas Morning News and Chancellor Sharp responded the Lubbock Avalanche Journal did a lead piece on it on Friday and then in the Lubbock Avalanche Journal on Sunday was an editorial and you know it doesn't bother me that I'm not pointed out. I mean, it 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 irked me a little bit, but by and, so Lubbock Avalanche Journal wrote an editorial about it, just that John Sharp had written an editorial in the Dallas Morning News, just dropped it out of nowhere. And Sharp has not engaged this at all, and wanted to counter and respond to what what I had written and. And I appreciated him doing that. I really appreciated that it wasn't some under vice president of under secretary of something there. That it was John Sharp himself. Uh, Texas Tribune today puts out a piece without mention. So, but here's the deal, and I don't know how to say this more clearly. I get behind this microphone so that I can be curious and ask people questions and get to the bottom of things in ways that I couldn't sitting behind my keyboard on Facebook at home. And at times, like with 
the Dallas Morning News piece in the vet school, it begins to drive a larger conversation. And I'm grateful to be able to do that. In my whole, like, I think that I'm going to change the theme song to the show about having fun because that's what it's all about. Uh, in all the acrimony, to be able to have a platform where you give people what you think is a skinny, what you think is a truth after looking at it. Like today I was talking to a guy on the phone. He said, he called me, he said, hey, I listen and I really appreciate the show. And, and I think that this is a compliment of sorts because I'm big enough and I know what I believe uh, that I can argue what, what others might say. He says, I can't tell if you're a Republican or a Democrat. And it's because... I want to think through these issues, and I appreciate an audience that wants to think through the issues, too. If if you think that you're the hardest core conservative who ever walked the earth, then it's not going to hurt to listen to the perspectives and, and firm up your position or maybe modify or amend it to some, to some extent. I've done the hardcore conservative thing. I was that for a long time, lived on a diet of Ayn Rand and Milton Friedman, and had some life experiences that showed me that it's not all just theory and then some economic realities in business in Lubbock that showed me that you know it's it's not that black and white and you know guys that like to just always post the hottest furthest right thing have they tell me more about themselves than they do about reality and it's that a lot of times they don't live in reality so I appreciate the email, and and it's it's my honor. It's really a great privilege, just a small kid from Hell County, uh, to be able to help drive some conversations about things that matter. And my hope, in the end, is that we have a more perfect union, a more perfect state, and a more perfect uh, region. That's what I try to endeavor here on the program. I want to thank you for listening and. Some of you may not appreciate the monologue tomorrow, but it'll be fair and it'll be square on why we're better served with a a conservative Supreme Court. I think it'll give you more freedom to vote at the local level, the way that you feel best to do that. Went a little long on the show for Scott Braddock, for Brooks Landgraf. I want to sign off here for this edition. We'll catch you next time. Going to go home, going to get home great family above average dinner hope you're doing the same catch us more at other side of texas.com on twitter at ostx show and there on uh what am i missing there facebook other side of texas we'll see you next time right here and see the step of the rain